The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. The name Royal Shakespeare Company is certainly well known in this country, although I think a lot of our listeners are probably not as familiar with the RSC and what the RSC does as perhaps uh, people who live in England would be, because that, after all, is where the Royal Shakespeare Company is located. Our guest today is the Artistic Director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, Michael Boyd. Michael, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Michael, as John already alluded to, I think here in America we're used to seeing the cream of the crop of the RSC, and it seems every few years uh, show tours to BAM, to Broadway, to some of the major venues around the country. But I don't think we have a sense of really what the overall scope of the company is. So as we start, could you sort of give us a sense of, of the shape of the RSC? When I was an associate director of the RSC, a sort of hired gun Um, not running the company, my son pointed out to me that we were in the Guinness Book of Records as the largest theatre company in the world, and I felt very depressed. Uh, It made me think uh, the company was like a factory or something. And on becoming artistic director, I, I, I felt I wanted it to not necessarily become infinitely smaller, but... My ambition was that we could start behaving almost like a fringe company, like an off-Broadway company, um, and be more, uh, more, more, more daring, more nimble, even though we have 700 staff. We have um, three theatres in Stratford, although at the moment, of course, we don't because we're rebuilding our Royal Shakespeare Theatre, historic theatre built in, the ni- in 1932, uh, with a lot of help it has to be said, from America, particularly the Rockefeller Foundation. We're a large organization. We're rebuilding that theater. We're working out of a temporary theater at the moment uh, of about a 1,000 seats in Stratford-on-Avon. We no longer have a permanent London home. We left the Barbican before my time um, at the turn of the millennium. And ever since then, we've been improvising in London, and we've ended up with our happiest improvisation so far at a disused railway shed in Camden in North London called the Roundhouse. And it's a venue famous for for rock bands as much as for theatre. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison of The Doors um, famously played there. And there have also been some very exciting theatrical experiments before. But never until this spring, when we brought our eight-play history cycle to London in the Roundhouse with the same company of 34 actors playing all eight plays in repertoire, never before has that railway shed felt like a proper theatre. We've we've cracked it with an extraordinary deep-thrust space uh, theatre module that we've implanted inside the Roundhouse. And I think we've begun to find the, the success story of, 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 uh, of, of our London presence, which may even have something of a, of a solution for New York embedded in it. Hmm. Well, you're, you're based in Stratford-upon-Avon, and you've mentioned that your main theater, the Royal Shakespeare Theater, is being rebuilt at this moment. That started uh, a year or two ago, I guess, and you, it's due to reopen in 2010. We started knocking it down in the autumn of 2007 Mm -hmm. Um, and we're due to reopen 
We'll get the theatre back from the builders in 2010. We'll start doing some work in there, winter 2010, and there'll be several grand openings in 2011. Meanwhile, you have a temporary theatre called The Courtyard. Which, of course, everyone's fallen deeply in love with, um, <laughs> as is the way with temporary theatres. And uh, it's, it's a big rusty box that lots of local residents were deeply opposed to uh, in the planning stages, and now everyone's fallen in love with it. It is the most luxurious prototype any theatre redevelopment project has ever had. Uh, it is a full-scale, <laughs> one-to-one model of what we want to do in our new permanent theatre. And we've lived there for over a year with the opportunity to learn from the glitches, from the, the mistakes, the things that could be improved. Uh, and we're very privileged in, uh, in that way to be able to, 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 to play with our temporary theatre and plan for our permanent one. But then you will demolish it. Is that correct? <laughs> We, I, well, I'm a long way away from Stratford-on-Avon politics um, <laughs> here, so uh, I, I could say that we would quite like to keep the exterior. Uh-huh. I need 2,000-plus theatres in Stratford-on-Avon like a hole in the head, so we won't keep it as a 1,000 uh, or, or term. What we might do is keep the exterior and build uh, a new small studio theatre plus perhaps three working spaces for our, our, our expanding education department. You mentioned politics. In the decision to renovate the original theater, there was a lot of concern when that decision was made, and that decision came over a long period of time. Where is it at now? Are people accepting? Or are people waiting to see what you've done with it? I think we've, I think we've got quite a lot of support now. I think historically there was an extent to which the Royal Shakespeare Company was a great big culture palace in a small market town with quite small windows and didn't really say hello to the town or the region indeed very much. And I hope that we have been much more consultative in the last few years and inclusive um, with uh, with the local folk and they can see in our plans that we're interested in opening our doors much more to people um, in the uh, area and make them feel much more welcome. So I, I think they're, they're, they're on side. There were some genuine difficulties, as there are with any major capital project. Um, the original plan was to completely knock it down. There was a lot of uh, opposition to this, including from uh, um, heritage lobbies and heritage bodies, government heritage bodies. And for us, that would be like historic preservation communities? Thanks. Yes. And I'm glad that we have had to keep some of the shell of the old building because it has acted as a kind of stomach stapling on, frankly, the size of the auditorium. We have had to come up with a very inventive way of pouring a commercially viable number of people into a very intense space. My ambition with this space has been to create tension, to create pressure, to create atmosphere. And I think we have miraculously pulled it off. Theatre building, auditorium building, since really the early 20th century, has increasingly turned its back on the old Victorian proscenium arch. One major model alternative has been for the 
such as the Olivier Theatre in the National Theatre in London or the Chichester Festival Theatre in the south of England. For Americans which are not dissimilar to, say, the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Centre. And indeed, um, perhaps at the Vivian Beaumont, have been most inspired by the Greek, the sacred arenas of the Greek theatre. We have been most inspired by the crowded secular complicity of the Renaissance Courtyard Theatre, which crams comfortably a large number of people into quite a vertical space. We have done an extraordinary thing of halving the distance uh, of the furthest seat in the house from the stage, from 30 metres in the old Royal Shakespeare Theatre, to 15 metres. This is particularly important when those seats are very often the ones occupied by young people on their first visit to the theatre. And is that because you're going to a thrust stage that puts the audience closer? And it's to do with other architectural, philosophical considerations, uh, such as my passionate belief uh, now that, yes, the proscenium is dead, and that increasingly theatre's offer is going to be most successful when it is most distinct from film or television or interactive media on the web. And one of its most distinctive offers is three-dimensional space. Another of its most distinctive offers is that it is a social, a profoundly social experience. Um, I'm not aware of being in a society when I'm watching, obviously, a video at home. Certain, uh, but also not when I'm in the cinema. I'm sat back. I'm having a passive, ultimately solitary experience. In a thrust stage, I can see you across the stage from me. I can see the lady in the green coat behind you. And I can see Hamlet in the middle having a terrible problem. <laughs> and that's already a much more interesting four-way dialogue that we're having <laughs> um, and we as an audience are aware of being an audience and we're aware that we have a role to play and I think in vivid theatre that role of the audiences is bigger more complex, more alive and uh, more acknowledged and celebrated as part of the experience and I think increasingly people are looking for that whether it's in a flash mob that has been generated over the web or by text, whether it's in a site-specific production down at St. Anne's um, uh, in New York, or whether it's uh, an experience of going to some, maybe, some, we'll say the tenement building in New York, the, the, the lovely business of being in, uh, greeted by role-playing people and, and, and participating in something. Increasingly, I think theatre is going to be about that, about real engagement. There's a quote from you a couple of months ago in The Spectator saying, my aim was and still is to knock Shakespeare off his pedestal. We've been talking about buildings, but let's talk about the material and, and the approach because I think you've just led into that. What I meant by my aim being to knock Shakespeare off his pedestal, it's an aim that, I, that it, on one hand I obviously hope will never be it's achieved. It's a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> That's to do with our ambition to produce as much contemporary work as Shakespeare work. Um, it is part of our royal charter as the Royal Shakespeare Company to uh, promote contemporary drama as well as to 
uh, secure and con- constantly refresh Shakespeare's play. Has that always been the, the case repertoire. for the RSC? Because again, in the perception over here is we think of it as a company that does only Shakespearean or major classical work. Yeah, that 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 is over the long run of the life of the Royal Shakespeare Company since 1961. It's a misperception. There have been there have been many years in the life of uh, of the RSC, and and they happen to coincide, I think, with the strongest years uh, of the Shakespeare work when there has been as much, if not more, um, production of contemporary work alongside it. This is very important for the ecology of the life of the actor, that they move between a direct address in a contemporary vernacular of what it's like to be alive now with no Shakespearean prismatic intervention. You're going straight, you're talking about what it's like to be alive now in language that everyone immediately recognises. I think working in a rehearsal room with a writer there is a terribly important reminder to directors and to actors that Shakespeare's not in the room and that there's still a responsibility to that person who's not in the room. I think it teaches, as you rewrite a new play through rehearsal, it teaches you some ABCs about dramaturgy. When you're thinking about how to cut Hamlet, which if you do the full folio version is four and a half hours long easily, um, and maybe you want to cut it down to three or two and a half, then you need to know about, you need to have an understanding about what makes a play tick. I think as a director I learned a great deal about dramaturgy from translating, uh, translation, uh, when uh, I learnt about the craft of a writer by translating from the Russian into English various projects, uh, and I think working with new writers is is very important in that way as well. I think it's attractive for actors to create roles. It's nice to see your name on the front page of a of a published play. I created that role. It's an exciting thing, and of course that is a good antidote to sometimes the almost insupportable burden of tradition if you're playing Hamlet or Bottom and you're going to be compared to 20 other Hamlets or Bottoms. It's nice to have a holiday from that and remember that everything is a creation um, and it's more obvious if you're, if you're working with, 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 with new writers. I think as the Royal Shakespeare Company also we have a lot to offer new writers. Uh, we're By setting them in repertoire with Shakespeare, we're paying them a great compliment, and we're also setting them some significant challenges. <laughs> I think that Shakespeare refuses to divorce high art from entertainment. He is incapable of reducing himself to a mere essayist. He is always marrying the metaphysical with the quotidian or the prosaic. He is always marrying the lyrical with that, too. He will never flinch from marrying, facing our mortality uh, with a banana skin. And some of these things, he's, he's very strong on narrative, but it doesn't stop him um, flying off at a tangent. He creates a language which is perfectly shaped for public spaces. Now, that's not true of every single contemporary dramatist, certainly not all those things combined. And 
there has been an extremely destructive influence of film and television on theatre writing, reducing it uh, to uh, uh, naturalism, uh, 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 an oppressive dominance of, of naturalism. Um, uh, writers are brought up on television and film more than they're brought up on theatre, and all they know how to write is observational dialogue sometimes. And also the economics of theatre can um, put a not a glass ceiling but a reinforced steel ceiling on the ambition of a contemporary writer in that they know their play is not going to get produced if it's got more than about six characters. We are offering them uh, next year, for instance, a company of 44 actors. Uh, I'm doing a premiere, probably suicidally, of uh, a new Ukrainian play that we commissioned and we're going to premiere it in English in a thousand seat theatre with a company of 44 actors now that's an offer that if I was a playwright I would not want to refuse when you choose contemporary playwrights to work at the RSC as you say it's, it's a daunting challenge is there an expectation from the public of the kind of contemporary play you're going to put alongside Shakespeare Right now, I'm not sure there is. Surely they weren't clamoring for a 44-actor Ukrainian play, for example. No, but I think that um, all arts organizations, and certainly uh, a, a national theater company like the RSC, uh, has a burden of responsibility to lead occasionally um, uh, and to take risks. We are asking writers to look at Shakespeare's dramaturgy we're asking them to spin more than four plates at a time within scenes. We're asking them to show the, the dramaturgical virtuosity of Shakespeare and deal with 16 people on stage at the same time all talking at once, uh, which we think is exciting. We're inviting them to step, out of, step away from the comfort blanket of television prose into our language that can cope with describing what it actually feels like to be alive as opposed to the way we behave in our front room. I think that's an area where the theatre is potentially stronger than any other medium. And uh, we're inviting them to literally actually steal some of Shakespeare's tricks sometimes. We're pointing out to writers... Um, these things that Shakespeare does repeatedly and why not steal them instead of stealing from Bernard Shaw and his hugely boring prefaces um, why not steal from a much better writer um, and the other thing that we're asking them we're inviting them to do is to come away from their lonely slightly paranoid room into the rehearsal room to join in with our ensemble to be part of a community, to bounce off actors, to bounce off directors, and to influence the life of the company, to have power and a voice in the theatre community. Well, since you became artistic director in March of 2003, you've done the complete 
works of Shakespeare, 37 plays, the sonnets, the long poems. You're just completing now the history cycle, the eight history plays that Shakespeare did. You just talked now about doing the 44 actor Ukrainian plays. When the press announcement came out announcing you as the artistic director, you made a statement that said, my aspiration is to ensure that we are an agenda-setting theater company. Is that what you meant, doing things like that? Did you mean something else? Or what, what, what is your agenda for the Royal Shakespeare Company? The fundamental agenda, the most important agenda, is ensemble. Ensemble. Is to celebrate the possibilities of artistic community, of collective theatre making, of the quintessentially collaborative nature of this art form in an age that worships the individual, the portfolio career, and personal choice in heavy inverted commas. The agent that says to commit to the RSC to a company of 44 for two and a half years, an extraordinary thing to do in American and British theatre, is to close down your choices. There is a restlessness of the spirit, certainly in the UK and the States, that is afraid of commitment, not just in the arts, but abroad, in culture. And the agenda is to march in the opposite direction and say not that life is too short to commit for two and a half years to a grand theatre project where you can really test yourself trust people enough to make yourself vulnerable while you're working, to be rigorous, to actually engage in quite profound intellectual inquiry, let alone physical discipline, Um, and just to take time over your art and craft. To do that is sufficiently important that actually life is too short not to do it, because even by the time you reach middle age, surely you will want to have done something extraordinary in your life if you're an artist and you will have want to have done something we all aspire to that aspect of the sublime which is that which is larger than ourselves. and I think the audience recognize it and I think it lifts them off their seat as well well in using the histories uh, as an example the cycle that you're, you're just completing now you have something like 34 actors who committed for two and a half years to play in seven out of the eight plays in repertory they each have to learn seven parts plus understudy others, uh, something like 264 different uh, different parts. How do you get actors to commit to that chunk of time, two and a half years, to basically give up their personal lives? Because they're in rehearsal every day, rehearsing other shows all day, then doing a different one at night. I read something like two years of rehearsals while they're performing. How do you get actors to do that? They haven't quite had to give up entirely their personal lives. We've had we've had babies born. We've had we've, we've had <laughs> marriages, deaths, and uh, and so on in the in the life of that company. Life has, of course, gone on, and to some extent, life can be absorbed more in a rehearsal room where you are amongst true friends, not promiscuous relationships engendered too rapidly over a short gig. relationships that you really had to invest in because you know you're stuck with these people for two and a half years Um, so life 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 has gone on how do how have we persuaded people well it's a step-by-step process Um, 
I think there are those actors who have seen the work of the great European ensembles and have been inspired by them. And if they're going to get an invitation to be in something a bit like that, then they're curious and they would like to do it. I think people recognize that the maybe the iconic moments of the past for the Royal Shakespeare Company, Peter Hall's Wars of the Roses, Nicholas Nickleby, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream, have all similarly been part of, been played by actors who have enjoyed being part of something where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, that, had, that, that hasn't thwarted the careers of, of those people who've taken part in those projects far from it. Um, it has, in many cases, catapulted them on to great success. And when the RSC has been at its best, it has been creating stars rather than chasing them. I'm not pretending that I that to say the first time I made the offer of two and a half years that 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 I, I, people were just sort of breaking my door down. Um, I had to be patient, but I think in the end, after you know some disappointments, you kind of self-select a group of people who are quite idealistic, and they're certainly up for challenge and change, and as a result, we've. We've been very lucky, and we've been hugely encouraged by the success beyond our dreams of the Histories Project to 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 carry on with this experiment. And it doesn't even really quite feel like an experiment anymore to us. And we're already finding not the doors being broken down this time as we cast for the next one, but there are more incoming phone calls than outgoing phone calls, let's say. <laughs> Well, perhaps in an American uh, term, it sounds rather like boot camp. Does this intense experience of these actors working together so closely for such a, a large amount of time, does this ultimately, do you think, make them better actors and better people? Better people would be far too presumptuous um, to, to, to say that's, a, that's entirely up to them. I mean, it's none of my business whether they're better people <laughs> or not. Um, I, I don't mind if they go out rogues and scandals. Um, uh, from the end of uh, 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 rogues and scoundrels at the end of their time with us but I do hope and I do think they're going out better artists um, more confident uh, with more virtuosity sometimes with more physical strength more dexterity certainly a deep instinctive understanding uh, of Shakespeare's language and having had an experience of the extraordinary, magical, unspoken communication with people that is rapport at its best uh, and its broadest sense of the word that will make them impatient when that doesn't exist for them in the future. And hopefully those who don't return to next, the next ensemble will be putting out seeds elsewhere of the same kind of level of expectation. And perhaps also with better memory capability. I just wish that I had hired a new row scientist on this project because there was an exercise done on London taxi drivers examining their hippocampi, which is where you store your sense of space, your sense of balance, and your memory. And interestingly, London taxi drivers who 
uh, have to take this big exam called the knowledge before they're allowed to practice the hackney cab drivers. They have to basically memorize all the routes and all they the streets. They have to memorize all the routes and all the streets. And surprise, surprise, the project, um, the research project, revealed that London taxi drivers have abnormally large hippocampi. And I suspect the same might be true of this company of actors. <laughs> <laughs> you made a comment a moment ago that in developing the company, it's more, you know, you look more to, I'm paraphrasing, make stars than bring in stars. But what is the role now in, in the RSC for some of the major figures of the English stage? Are there still the opportunities for those people to come in and work, given that they obviously have very lucrative opportunities on the stage or in film or in television? Absolutely, and it's it, it's there are moments when it's torture. It's like a Sophie's Choice. It's uh, am I really going to say no to the the passionate? Desire to do something at the RSC of someone who cannot commit for more than four months or five months or six months. Am I really going to look those gift horses in the mouth? There are times when I feel, yes, I must, because otherwise the company will be pulled out of shape. There are other times when I'm just very lucky, like um, David Warner, probably the most iconic Hamlet of, 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 all, t of all time at the RSC. Uh, from his 1960-something um, portray portrayal of Hamlet with Peter Hall. He has been a very sort of supportive figure in the shadows around my time at the RSC, and a very tall and skinny man that he is, I decided <laughs> he'd be a great Falstaff. And he joined our company. He joined this boot camp, and he uh, was utterly supportive of the policy that we now have, that everyone in this company has to understudy and David Warner's understudy of the gardener in Richard II was excellent you should have been there um, did he go on? <laughs> uh, he never had to go on <laughs> but he did the understudy run um, and he was there every night in case he had to go on he was a pro um, and there are other instances where in order to give some flexibility to the rhythm of, say, the Histories Company or our next two-and-a-half-year ensemble, you have to let them off the treadmill of repertoire now and again. They have to leave the theatre. They have to maybe just rehearse for a while or maybe, hey, go on holiday. <laughs> um, so what are you doing in your theatre in those periods? Well, that could well be all's well that ends well with Judy Dench as the Countess. It could well be um, a, 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 a vehicle for someone brilliant from the RSC's past um, who uh, can have a chance to shine in the time that they are available and maybe as their time with the company crosses over some of these very experienced people can come and, and do some work with the long-term ensemble and as Patrick Stewart did with our Histories Ensemble, while he was working on a shorter contract elsewhere, he worked with our company um, and, uh, and taught, and, and taught very well. He's a good teacher. Let's go in a different direction for a few minutes now and talk specifically about you, Michael Boyd. You obviously have one of the great prestigious theater jobs in the world. How did you get started in theater? What's your background? 
How did I get started? I did... I read some poems at school in a sort of speech day contest, and that went well. I wrote, directed, and starred in my own play at the age of nine. It was Sherlock Holmes and the Magic Tree, um, (laughs) which my medical statistician father helped me with the redrafting of. (laughs) And my best friend played Dr. Watson. Then I started... I I just... I didn't really go to the theatre very much at all. I just started doing lots at school and even more at university. And at university, I realised if I was going to be an actor, I was going to be a grumpy actor that thought the director was wrong all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So I... I thought, well, it was wisest probably just to become one. And then I was lucky, I think, in being turned down for a trainee directorship by the Scottish Arts Council, who told me I was too young and to come back next year. And I arrogantly decided that I would go abroad in that case. And I applied for a British Council fellowship to go to Moscow as a trainee director, where I had heard... There was the beginning in 1979 of a thaw in the theatre allowing through some of the very exciting uh, sort of race memory of the exciting times immediately post-revolution of Mayor Holt and theatre artists like him that were were moving on from Stanislavski and doing something perhaps more uh, exciting and total theatre-ish. And... um, Going to a country generally, actually, where my art, my chosen art and craft of being a theatre director, was sort of acknowledged. Very often in in England, it seemed to me, there was a very literary theatrical tradition where the, 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 the director was a sort of scholarly figure who interpreted text hmm. for the actors. And... I didn't want to be a scholar. If I wanted to be a scholarly figure, I wanted to go and do a PhD and become a scholar. And in the theatre, I wanted to be an artist. And in Russia and in Eastern Europe, the director, even perhaps to a fault, was acknowledged as an authorial artist. And there were skills that you could see on stage that perhaps weren't exercised with the same virtuosity elsewhere. And so, I, I, yeah, I was lucky. I had a very, very exciting stirring, formative experience. The first time I ever went abroad was to Moscow in 1979. And because the theatre in Moscow at that time was the most important central cultural voice because it was the least censorable, I realised a lot about the potential of the political significance of theatre, I think. It taught me even back in much more cushy England and Scotland uh, to take theatre more seriously and to take my responsibilities as a theatre maker more seriously. Um, having seen how how high the stakes were morally and politically in the, in the Soviet Union of, at that time. Well, I was in Moscow in 1979 also for a television show and I just wonder your impression. I got the sense that both the Kremlin and the people themselves were very interested in learning about the West, about other, about the United States, about Great Britain, because they, the Olympics were a year off. The Moscow Olympics in 1980 were a year away. Uh, what was your impression of the Russians and their reception to you and working with them in a country that was very different than where you came from? 
they were they were interested in me they found me they found me slightly amusing a 22 year old boy as they saw it pretending to be a director if you're a director if you were a director at that time in the soviet union you were you were probably 60 years old um you weren't you, you weren't allowed near the, the the training alone was sort of six seven years at least and then you you, you were a t-boy for another decade um so the idea of, uh, there was something gloriously upstartish about me for them fast yeah a, a galvanizing heart tremendous hunger for all things western i remember going to an elton john concert at the kremlin hall and you know elton john is really seriously tame um and but elton hadn't been allowed to bring his full band um hadn't been allowed to bring his full band he'd only been allowed to bring up so he brought a percussionist called ray cooper and it was electric actually it was a tremendous concert by him and um ray cooper went completely mental on the drums um in the concert and elton did a segue between get back and get back in the ussr and back in the ussr it was the start of the afghan intervention and various other imperialist moves um afterwards friends of mine soviet friends of mine were coming away sh- shocked and trembling and saying, now I understand why Western rock music isn't really allowed. Um, and, and it was Elton John. It was Mr. Yellow Brick Road. Um, uh, Mr. Silly Wigs and Silly Glasses. Um, so, so that was interesting. I tell you, it's in retrospect, since I started doing some work on Shakespeare, I really understood... I could see how the Soviets and the Eastern Europeans generally understood Shakespeare so much better than we did. They knew what it was like to live under oppression. Things were obvious to them with X-ray eyes that we had to rummage around and and usually would miss. And it completely opened my eyes to the story of Shakespeare, the genius dissident who, almost uniquely amongst his contemporaries in Elizabethan England, avoided torture, jail or death. It's one of his most remarkable achievements that we don't celebrate enough that he survived (laughs) to give us all these great plays. And I would never really have understood that as it's kind of getting commonplace now as the new historicist look at, uh, at the Renaissance at Renaissance England and the context the, the beautiful work of people like Stephen Greenblatt um, have, are making everyone aware now that Shakespeare was uh, treading uh, on very thin glass with his work in a, in a very dangerous political climate as someone from a Catholic background in a, in a newly Protestant country and the combination of being a Northern Irishman whose family were in Belfast and having been to the Soviet Union really formed a lot of my approach to Shakespeare. Let's come back from Russia now to your work in England. You worked at a couple of companies as an assistant associate director, then uh, an associate director at the Crucible in Sheffield. You founded your own theater company, the Tron Theater in Glasgow. What kind of work were you doing there? At the Tron, there were 
in Glasgow at the time, there was a very powerful company called the Citizens Theatre uh, that were celebrated throughout Europe. Wonderful visual style, daring approach, 50 pence a seat. Extraordinary. Uh, they, they, it's a theatre in the middle of, uh, uh, of, uh, of a really very depressed area of Glasgow in the east end of Glasgow uh, 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 and they were doing shows like Balzac's Vautrin um, on their main stage and getting full houses um, it was a great inspiration but they didn't really respect writers there was another great space called the Tramway which was a bit like BAM in some ways, a nice sort of found spaces, quite post-industrial. Again, writers didn't get much of a look in. It was all very performance art influenced. And across in Edinburgh, there was the Traverse Theatre that was utterly writer-focused and, and very successful in that way. So I was trying to work out where to position us, and I suppose I found myself trying to declare the end of the war between high-concept visual theatre and verbal sophistication and good writing. I was trying to insist that they were not mutually exclusive. And I suppose that was my artistic policy. When the call came in 1996 from the RSC, I mean, that's quite a call. What, what was your immediate reaction, not to be the artistic director at that point, to be mm. an associate director? Was was it a call? Was it something you pursued? It was... Uh, doing a show was something I had been interested in doing. And then after I did the show, which was John Ford's Broken Heart, and it went well, Olivia Williams um, played Calantha, and her heart was broken. It, uh, it was dinner uh, and and a proposition... And I thought, yes, great. But I, at that stage, actually, the, the proposition came in a, a year a year before that. Was this uh, Adrian Noble propositioning yeah, you? It was. And I had to say at that time, I couldn't do it for a year. And uh, so, and Adrian was, was, was cool about that. And I went back to Glasgow for a year and then made, because it was a big move. It was a move. It was moving my family um, and also not letting the Tron down. So a year later, I made the move uh, to London and uh, started a life of shuttling up and down between Stratford and a Stratford on Avon and London. And it, yes, it was it was very exciting. Um, in some ways, I missed. Uh, I felt slightly lopsided because all I was doing really was directing plays. I think, frankly, it was one of the things that was wrong with the organisation, that the associates weren't made more use of organisationally in some way. I was directing plays. Um, and I got lopsided because I, I missed... I missed all the worry about budgets and, 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 and the loo roll. Uh, you missed those things? Yeah, I did. I, I missed arguing with the cooks and, <laughs> and, the, and, 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 and having a good time with the front of house staff and it's, it's one of the aspects of being artistic director that I enjoy very much although it's quite, it's quite pressured there's a, there's a lot of everything as your artistic director but there is a more balanced ecology between the slightly more normal life I would say of running an organisation and the 
the inevitably uh, the inevitably more intense existence of a rehearsal room and 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 conceiving theatre. Uh, and I think it's good to balance the two. I think they feed each other. Well, as someone who is just directed an acclaimed production of the History Cycle, I have to ask, you were a prince for six years. How did you become king? Well, I was still a prince, of course. When I was crowned king, I remember a very hostile interview on the radio. I had had so many hostile interviews on my first day. There was a why? Why do you? Why was it so hard? Because the the RSC was was in some hot water. Really, it, 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 there there were some issues. Let's say um, there uh, were. I'll say it. You probably don't want to. There were <laughs> questions of morale. There were questions of structure. There was questions of facility. All of that were were very public at the time. Mm. And there was a three million pound and a deficit. deficit. Um, and I I I thought it was quite unfair, really, because I hadn't done it. Um, but I got a hostile interview on Newsnight, um, uh, which is a late night, very you know high profile current affairs show. I got um, a, not a bad press conference actually, but with some very waspish contributors from the back, very skeptical about my ability to do anything. And then I came back to Stratford to have a sort of a, a, a celebratory party with the company. But just before I could get into the party, there was a radio interview over the phone with a lovely guy called Mark Lawson, who's a great arts journalist in Britain, uh, which started with, you know, it, uh, this is the, uh, you, you've been handed a hollow crown, haven't you, sort of thing. Um, and that, that was a very bruising first day. And I think, I don't know, how, how do you become, uh, uh, one, one, uh, I suppose I've become king by not becoming king by declaring something of an ensemble republic and by simply learning as you go and by, uh, quite pragmatically, trying to talent spot as much as possible and and gather a very strong um, senior team around me that that I've tested with this last project, directing eight plays in in, uh, two years has meant that I have been away from a lot of those crucial meetings where big decisions have had to be made. And yes, I've had my lunch times and my pre-rehearsal times and my post-rehearsal times, but really people have had to be quite self-motivating and judicious uh, without me. And it, it, it has proven, I think, the really strong maturity of the team that we've got now. I wouldn't have even been able to consider going into that project if by that stage I hadn't had uh, a, a very strong confidence in a, uh, a self-empowered team. Well, you became artistic director in March of 2003. Three years later, April 2006, you began probably the most ambitious project ever undertaken by any theater group, and certainly within Shakespearean uh, theaters. All 37 of the Shakespeare plays, the sonnets, the long poems, 15 of those productions in the complete works that you did were done by the Royal Shakespeare Company 
itself, others by other companies, but all 37, including people like Dame Judi Dench and Sir Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Uh, how did you get this project going? How did you convince the board to do it? And how did you get this very ambitious project started when you were really quite new on the job? Well, I've talked about how great the senior management team are, but the board are amazing. That, uh, the, the day we actually laid out in some detail our, our program for the Complete Works Festival, it's the only time an artistic, an artistic program has had a round of applause at a board. And this was something that was going to cost a lot of money and be mm-hmm. very risky. Uh, so they 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 were very they were very brave, but I think they trusted us to not have overestimated the potential box office for a Russian Twelfth Night, or an Indian Midsummer Night's Dream, or a Polish. Well, no, uh, there, well, there was a good one. There was a, there was a Turkish German translation, really quite obscene translation uh, uh, of Othello, that the Munich um, Schauspielhaus brought. Uh, Performed in in German with, and you translating it back. The first draft of the translations back were just really quite <laughs> unacceptable. <laughs> they seemed even more offensive on surtitles running above the stage. Um, so we didn't overestimate what the potential box office uh, of that was like. So the board saw us as being prudent, and it was a tremendous success. And actually, for instance, that uh, that tricky Othello, uh, which was tremendous production with uh, Thomas Timer playing Othello as a uh, white not even he was just a, he was just white and you just had to believe that he was black um uh, he didn't black up or anything um uh, uh, he's the uh, one of the the baddies in the lives of others that wonderful um <laughs> film about eastern german secret police it caught the imagination of the public in stratford in munich when that show opened a hundred people walked out on the first night in in sophisticated Munich in little old provincial Stratford on Avon. Three people walked out. I thought that was a that was a, <laughs> that was a result. Um, the complete works of Shakespeare Festival was various things. It was a Trojan horse in which to introduce into the RSC best practice from around the world to end what I had felt to be a, a slight provincialism about 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 the company it, the, 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 there was a danger of it being a little bit inward looking and if I was going to make the company even more inward looking by reviving the ensemble principle which potentially means you turn in on yourself a bit then it was crucial that we have the equal and opposite reaction in the other direction of uh, seeing what other people are doing at their best around the world with Shakespeare, and that's quite scary. They might be doing it better than us. Uh, I don't think that's that scary. If they're doing it better than us, we can copy them and we can get better. <laughs> just steal their ideas. Um, and it was also actually a tra- that that was true within UK theatre as well. There were uh, there are a lot of very good companies producing Shakespeare around Great Britain and. We wanted to uh, collaborate with them as opposed to look askance at them. And we wanted to make a big gesture so that everyone knew that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to celebrate Stratford as our destination, as our, 
a really nice place to go, feed the ducks, go for a walk in stunning countryside and mess about on the river and spend a lot of time with Shakespeare. Um, to explore those deep truths in our house playwright that really do speak to nations and not just to middle-class English people. It was also a great big look-over-there trick because at the time of the complete works we were just about to turn into a building site as we <laughs> destroyed our theatre to rebuild it again and make it better. And it was a look over there to everyone to make them look at... I mean, over there was the important place in this case. It's theatre, it's shows, it's our art and craft. It's not rebuilding project. And it was very successful in making that the story rather than the rebuilding project, which are so... You know, rebuilding projects are so often dull and controversial at the same time. Um, and and it, it, it succeeded very much in that way. And I think it's broadened the minds of our audience. And I think it's had... I think it's still having ripples throughout British theatre. It was lovely to be able to say hello to so much American theatre. Chicago Shakespeare came over, Theatre for a New Audience came over with a brilliant Merchant of Venice. Um, and we were in discussions with them way, way, way in advance. Because, of course, it was a logistical nightmare. Who is doing Henry IV Part One and Two? Who is doing this? It was also a smokescreen under the cover of which to try our first experiment with a two-and-a-half-year ensemble with our Histories Project. Uh, to do that in the full naked glare of, 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 of that being all we were doing, I felt was very high, would have been very high risk. But to make it the, the subtle spine throughout the festival that would live on beyond the festival till now, we've only just finished uh, a year and a half later, uh, would be to give it a, a secure beginning and a, a multicultural context in which, to, in which to begin and to get it under the radar, really, to get away with it. And, of course, we wouldn't have got away with it if it hadn't worked. Unfortunately, it has ended up being a great success. But it, it, was, it, it was protected by the smokescreen of the Complete Works Festival. You've just done the histories cycle. You've mentioned another two-and-a-half-year commitment coming up. What's, what's coming up next for the Royal Shakespeare Company? Well, again, we can probably be a bit more confident and out in the open and without a smokescreen about it um, now. Uh, that, 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 that is what we're about. We're about a, a community of artists that's going to take that much time together. We will be doing a repertoire of probably four of four comedies and four of the of the more of the more sort of serious tragic pieces over over the two and a half years we will be doing with the company um as many as as six or seven new pieces at least three of which are going to be commissioned from authors to write for given actors, which is only possible if those actors are together for that period of time, because the writer has to get to know them, 
they have to write their not very good first draft <laughs> then they have to write their much better second draft and then we have to rehearse it and we have to put it on and so on um, so that is an, a wonderful new opportunity that's opened up that we are going to be able to exploit and I suppose there are two there are two big ideas that are going to feed into the life of that company one is finally I'm going to get around to exploring um, the, the great Russian theatre tradition I trained in Russia and I've never directed a Russian play in my life it's, it's crazy um, so we are going to start probably a five year long inquiry into Russian theatre and Russian society and at the end of the life of the company there are three things happening one is this is the company that will open the new Royal Shakespeare Theatre two is this will also be the 50th anniversary of the Royal Shakespeare Company and the third thing is it will be the 400th anniversary of the um, first publication of the King James Bible translation and uh, we're going to use that an, uh, as an occasion for an exploration of, of, of faith and the great the great stories of the great faiths uh, through through drama and we're, we've already that's several years away now but we've already started sowing the seeds and uh, commissioning works much to look that much to look forward to especially for American tourists who visit the United Kingdom Michael thank you so much for being with us today on downstage center thank you for having me Michael thank you for the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.